what happens when uptight Bostonian John Adams. You must let me in. I'm speaking to the ambassadors from France in five minutes. And laid back Virginia planner Thomas Jefferson. I like my women big and my government small. Who are bitter political rivals. No man should have to live under tyrannical rule. Oh yeah, what about your slaves? Pass. Have to share the White House? I'm sorry, gentlemen, but the Constitution clearly states that the runner-up in the presidential election becomes the vice president. You can't mean that we're going to be housemates? They're about to find out the only thing worse than fighting your enemies. It's my room. I can play violin as loud as I want. What crawled up your XYZ? Is living with them. I do my best writing against the deadline, John. The deadline was yesterday, Tom. I didn't say which side of the deadline I'd be up against. From the people who brought you giant divisions along party lines and the producers of term limits, it's My Two Presidents. My Two Presidents, the Constitution really fucked us. Coming to USA, fall of 1796. From Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, a special episode Inaugurations and Transitions. The discussions and talkbacks you will hear on today's episode were recorded on December 30th. 2020. So we know there have been some news events that have happened since then. And we're off to another special episode. And at this point, we're going to be doing more special episodes than there are presidents, which may make for a very long series, which is okay by us, as long as y'all keep listening to us. But as we prepare our next episode, next special episode, we prepare for a new president and how we get there. And given that we have been digging into presidential histories and given how fraught this particular episode, this particular being episode being 2020, depending on when you hear us, we thought, well, this is a fun time to take a step back because we always think, oh my God, this is new. This is horrible. What the hell is happening? Only if you do some research, you discover, nah, we've done this before. So This is old. This is horrible. What the hell is happening? <laughs> exactly. Well, this is happening again. So with that in mind, we welcome back two of our favorite scholarly historians. Can y'all introduce yourselves again for our audience? Sure. I'm Dr. Chelsea Denault, and I. everyone's applauding because I said doctor. That was really nice. Uh, I'm Dr. Chelsea Denault, and I am a historian in Michigan. And? And? Uh, well, I was actually asking her, you can talk more about yourself, Chelsea. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm like, is there something else? Is there more you have to say? Just get it all out, please. No. Also returning is James. Oh, I'm the other scholarly historian. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I just, yeah. <laughs> I'm neither a gentleman nor a scholar, so it must be. <laughs> oh, it's me. I teach seventh graders, so I, I, I'm not exactly uh, 
putting myself in the in the scholarly category here. If, if you know the saintly get, category, perhaps we get through a day without public vomiting. Okay, it's it's a bonus. But um, is that from the historical figures or from the class? <laughs> Either or. Well, then let's start with that question. How many presidents vomited before taking the oath of office? James <laughs> Mentelsi. Every single one. That's why they have the stress bomb trash can right outside of the door. Well, no, Johnson 17. did it as a vice president. Very true. He oh, showed up he... drunk to his vice presidential <laughs> inauguration. Ah, It was the highlight of his career. <laughs> I wonder if he just thought no one was paying attention. You know, always count on Lyndon Johnson for something like that. No, the, that wasn't that was Andrew Johnson. No, uh, LBJ could hold his liquor. Yeah. I was gonna say he was a large man. <coughs> Lyndon Johnson, the transition was pretty damn quick and unexpected. I think it was on a peaceful. And to date back to one of our special episodes, his Christmas was pretty spontaneous. He just kind of invited Congress over for a party because he'd been in office for exactly, you know, thirty-one days, maybe. So it's like what the hell? I have no traditions to uphold. I'll start a new one. Get everyone drunk. <laughs> or you could argue that that you know there weren't those traditions laid out. So, well, let's. He was we, starting traditions. Yeah. Can we maybe maybe take sort of a half a shuffle step back a little bit because, as I think we think we know, a lot of the construction of the American government of the American experiment was was in reaction to what was considered to be the excesses of the British Empire. Well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that when a British monarch transitions, there's a bit of tradition. There's a bit of party. There's a bit of pomp and circumstance, shall we say. We've seen the crown, so yes, there's a whole coronation ceremony. Well, their only transition typically happens because the old monarch is dead, so that's a little more reason. It's not quite every four years, so... The sitting monarch is the head of the Church of England after Henry VIII. So I think it comes with a lot of like religious weight for the English people. But but it does lead to, I guess, my initial question, which is, as traditions were starting to be set and norms, and as we all know, traditions and norms <laughs> are respected by everybody. But as traditions were, and norms were starting to be created in the American experiment, how conscious was Washington than Adams than Jefferson, shall we say, in either kind of doing what they used to do back in the old uh, home country back in the day, or consciously saying, let's do something different to mark this new set of leaders in this new crazy quilt of a place called America? Yeah, I feel that way about Washington, both Washington and Adams. It's just that Washington did things right and Adams did not. <laughs> what an admission coming from you. <laughs> right. Don Adams had great Adams character. Very good at making himself unlikable, which is, is yes. it's something that we talked about, that Laura and I talked a lot about when we talked about John Adams is, while he was very concerned about his image and, and, and his legacy, he did a very good job of making himself very unlikable. I, I feel like I'm sure John Adams is one of these people where he does a lot of good stuff. And, you know, a lot of his writing reveals someone who, you know, had some strong feelings about justice and and, you know, what was right. But absolutely rubbed people the wrong way and, and just had a way of carrying himself incorrectly or saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment so that people really just didn't like him 
and and because of that, John Adams, and we've talked about this as well. So uh, there's a plug to listen to the John Adams. Uh, Absolutely. Because John Adams had made himself so unlikable, his presidency was so difficult and challenging for him. It was very unenjoyable for him. And so he was very eager to leave Washington <laughs> as quickly as he could and honestly spent most of his presidency in in Massachusetts, um, which I think <laughs> is something that we that Laura and I had talked about. Um, yeah, he spent most of his presidential term at their family estate at Peacefield. That's one of the reasons why he didn't bother, you know, besides the bad blood that was that existed between him and Jefferson. It's one of the reasons why he was he left Washington long before Jefferson's inauguration. Abigail had already returned to Massachusetts. He, he was gone. I think he was one of, since then, one of three presidents who has not attended the inauguration of his successor. While they were alive. And give them a favorable issue for your peace and prosperity. Well, Sally, what do you think? It's just as wonderful as the first ten times you read it, Thomas. Uh, where are the Adamses? His quills are still here. Oh, that little dictator is somewhere on the premises. Uh, speaking of little dictators, d- did you like my veiled jab at Napoleon? You know, where I say, lopped by the sword of revolution, where peaceable... Rem- where peaceable remedies are unprovided. It's great, Thomas. I'm sure everyone will compliment you on your subtlety. Um, I wanted to ask Mrs. Adams if she would like some produce from Monticello... The dwarf kale and blood turnips are plentiful this year. Uh, has Abigail Adams no household servant, you could ask? Thomas, Mrs. Adams is from Massachusetts. And your point is? <sighs> Spoken like a Virginia plantation owner who talks about equal and exact justice of all men. You stay here in your new office and edit your speech, and I'll go look for the Mr. and Mrs. Just edit? I thought you liked my inaugural address, Sally. Thomas, I have no doubt it will be one of the four best inaugural addresses ever delivered. I see what you did there. What should I change? Well, Mr. Adams said some very nice things about General Washington in his inaugural address four years ago. It seems like you, too, could at least mention your predecessor. I do. Did you miss the part about it will rarely fall to the lot of imperfect men to retire from the station with the reputation and the favor which bring him into it? Adams will turn purple as an eggplant when he hears that. You know, I wouldn't blame Mr. and Mrs. Adams if they fled Washington rather than stick around for your inauguration. Don't be ridiculous, Sally. John and Abigail will show up. They're probably just in some tavern drowning their sorrows. So, now I'm a drunkard. That's about the only moral failing of which you didn't accuse me during the campaign. Gracious. Oh, so sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Adams. We didn't see you. I believe it's your master who owes us an apology, Sally. Come now, John and Abigail. You, you know it's just politics. Here, let me read you part of my address. Can I get you all some nice, comfortable chairs? You're going to need them. Go along then, Sally. During the contest of opinion through which we have passed, the animation of discussions and of exertions has sometimes worn an aspect which might impose on strangers unused to think freely and to speak and to write what they think. See, it's just rhetoric. It doesn't mean anything. 
Oh, so you don't think I'm a hermaphrodite? Of course not. We shared an outhouse, after all. The hermaphrodite slur was James Callender's idea. Oh, so your campaign manager thinks I'm a hermaphrodite. I can't believe these foolish men. At times, I think the world would be better off if their voices fell silent. But then they wouldn't be able to tell us ladies what to do. Come now, Abigail, you know our government is for total equality, whether you're a landowner from Virginia or a landowner from New England. Indeed. Well, we came to say our goodbyes. Our stagecoach is waiting, and we hope to be in Massachusetts by tomorrow. Massachusetts? You're not staying for my inauguration? Is there any law that says we must? Of course not. I know you're not that familiar with the Constitution, John, but at least you know that. But... Don't you think your departure will deal a devastating blow to national unity? You'll miss the part of my address where I say, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. Wait, that's in your inaugural address? Of all the inane flights of sophistry that have ever assaulted the human ear. John, please. Thomas is just trying to be kind. Well, he's so little practice at it, no wonder he failed. Fine, then, if you'll excuse us from the inauguration, I'll excuse all your slanders against my character. Well, you're quite sure I can't persuade you to stay? I know we have our disagreements, John, but it's like I say in my inaugural address, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. I brought some refreshments. I know listening to Mr. Jefferson's speeches can make one lightheaded. You know, I might be persuaded to stay a few days to see you take the oath of office. If you come visit us in Massachusetts and bring that Sally along with you. What? I think that's a splendid idea. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm not so sure about that. Wait a second. Didn't Massachusetts ban slavery in 1783? A precedent set by the Commonwealth's Supreme Court. Well, I can't allow it then. I, I can't go bringing property to a place where it's not recognized as such. Those are some impressive mental gymnastics, Thomas. Mr. Jefferson's brain is even more agile than his tongue. Well, then, I guess it's unfair of me to ask you to stay. How you must miss little John Quincy. Little John Quincy is 33 and ambassador to Prussia. Come to think of it, he could run for president in a couple of years. How fortunate you are to have a son to continue your legacy. And how unfortunate that you don't. Um, actually... Well, (laughs) I won't keep you any longer. Stagecoaches aren't cheap. Uh, So off with you, John and Abigail. Uh, Maybe I'll invite you down for a barbecue on the 4th of July or something. We'd be tickled to death. Ta-ta. Oh, my goodness. Wasn't Mr. Jefferson suddenly eager to see the back of us? Almost as eager as I am to show him my backside. Sally, there are times when I wonder if you aren't very fond of me. Really? Who couldn't revere a man of such high ideals? A man who utters ringing phrases like, the minority possesses the equal rights which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. As easily as he says, fetch me a clean pair of drawers, Sally. You're right, I am great. I shouldn't doubt you or myself. Thank you for reminding me of who I am. What would I do without you? You could always free me and find out. (laughs) Stop asking. So has the oath of office always been administered by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Courts? No, it it has been since the beginning, but 
at least once it was it given by a New York state judge, which I think is bizarre because like it's not even an officer of the federal government. But <laughs> as we've learned sometimes, though, yeah. the New York State Justice Department can do things that the federal government apparently can. <laughs> Here's your uh, then, right here. <laughs> on, uh, on several instances, it was issued by an associate judge of the Supreme Court. Uh, and this is apocryphal. Uh, and I don't know that it's I've never read a uh, historic account that says that it is 100 percent true, but. It is said that Washington added the so help me God at the end of the first inaugural oath. Because? Because he was scared as all hell. <laughs> so there, <laughs> because he wanted God's help. That's he why. Literally needed God's so help. Who wrote, the, who wrote the first oath then? Was this something? Ooh. I thought um, perhaps Washington had it together himself. Or I actually don't know who wrote the first oath. You mean Washington wrote his own oath like we write people write their own wedding vows now? No, he oh. was given he was he was there was an oath that the chief justice repeated to him that he then repeated but at the end he just said so help me god. In the constitution. Yeah, the, in the constitution it, it, is, says, it is the constitution oath or Thank affirmation. <laughs> I don't think the actual text of the oath is in there but I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong too. Hmm, um, the well, first time. And I'm, now that I'm thinking, it must have been a New York state judge who inaugurated Washington because, of course, there wouldn't have been any federal judges at that point <laughs> since none had been appointed. See, I'm also thinking inflection could be a big deal because there's a difference between so help me God and so help me God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't I obviously wasn't there. Surprise. <laughs> But I, I, in my head, just because of the weight of the task that was at hand, I feel like you can hear in those words like a heaviness to them. At least that's what I've always imagined. Okay. So it is in the Constitution. Oh, uh, the, the clause is one of three oath or affirmation clauses in the Constitution, but it is the only one that actually specify the words that must be spoken. Oh, well, don't you remember? I think if people remember when Obama took his oath of office the first time, some of the words were flubbed and they yeah. had to redo it and <laughs> record it so people could see it. And so nobody could say, Hi, you're not the president because you didn't say the whole <laughs> oath, right? Nothing but the oath. So he was following, wasn't he following Roberts and Roberts yeah, transitioned Roberts, the words? Roberts flubbed it. That is correct. Yep. So a lot of people were saying, well, Obama isn't the president because he wasn't properly sworn in. And they were mm. like, it's no big deal. You know, I said, like, okay, we'll do it again. Because <laughs> he doesn't speak we, English, he speaks Kenyan, hmm. which is yeah. English. But anyway. <laughs> can we, uh, can we talk about the day without a president then, if we're going to talk about people messing up the oath? So Ooh. this is something I came across in my research. Nowadays, I, and really since the beginning, the the inauguration has either been on March 4th or on January 20th. They moved mm -hmm. to January 20th once they passed the, the 12th Amendment. And um, we'll have to talk about transitions and oh, we the will. really oh, yeah. awkward, oh, we will. long lane. And, and this also assumes it's a transition because of yeah. an election and not because of an unfortunate demise of somebody. Somebody too much ice cream. <laughs> the way it works now is that if, if the January 20th falls on a Sunday then they do the oath on that Sunday in like a private, like it's televised, but it's in private. 
It's not a big deal. And then they do the whole public party the next day. It's like when your birthday falls on a Sunday, right? And so you go out with your friends the night before, even though it's the day before your birthday. Um, you know, they do the they do the inauguration on Monday. The oath is on the, the day before. But before the 12th Amendment, this wasn't done. And there were a couple of instances where, or at least one instance where they failed to do the private oath on the Sunday. And so March 4th, 1842, Zachary Taylor, his term began that day and uh, his predecessor, oh, help me out. Who's before Taylor? Polk. Polk? Yeah, okay. Polk. So Polk's (laughs) term ends at midnight on uh, March 3rd, 1842. But because March 4th is a Sunday, Zachary Taylor is not around. He's going to do the whole public inauguration on March 5th. And so on Sunday, March 4th, 1842, there was no president of the United States. Technically, wasn't it 1848? Because that's when Taylor was elected. Or 1849, wasn't it? I might, I might have the year wrong. You have Taylor, have... And, like many, many, many millions of people, you have. You might be flipping Tyler and Taylor. <laughs> Tyler's and Taylor. As some people, really as some people mix up Monroe and Madison. So there we go. <laughs> like Tyler me, and Taylor like sounds me. like a really bad sitcom. Taylor and Tyler, Tyler and Taylor, newest vaudeville act. It was Tyler because it was Tyler and Fillmore. Fillmore had been was the vice president, and he wasn't around either. So, <laughs> yeah, th- there was no president that day. Some people apparently told the the president pro tem of the Senate that he was the president that day, like after the fact. But no, please tell me it was Henry Clay. Please tell me it was Henry Clay. <laughs> So close. One break. You get one break, Clay. <laughs> God. Well, see, um, that, that's that's a transition. By the way, that's in anticipation of what we're guessing is going to be another one of our special episodes, Famous Losers. I was going to say, when's our Henry Clay episode? <laughs> Take your time. Because well, we also, we're also going to do William Stennings Bryant and Adley Stevenson oh. and probably Harold oh. Stass, I mean, Stass. And we got a whole bunch of them. But anyway... What are some of your favorite inaugurations? The historians. Let's ask you that. Ah. Okay. My uh, top three. Um, <laughs> yes, She's I pulled have. out a prepared list. <laughs> Doesn't everybody have three favorite inaugurations? So uh, obviously the, the Hoover FDR feud. The... Um, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, or, you know, cold shoulder, John Quincy Adams is like, I'm going to pull a, a, a my dad and just not come to your inauguration. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Lincoln, right? Like, the guy who's elected and no one likes him, so, like, six states just decide to leave between now and Inauguration Day. Like, you're already starting out great, man. Was Buchanan one of the presidents who didn't show up for the inauguration? That sounds about right, and that sounds very Buchanan. It tracks. I mean, it's very on brand. I don't know that mm-hmm. that that he's the third third one. I'm going to look it up though. Do you have a favorite inauguration? He seems like the type who would have a snit. Yeah, it's on brand. <laughs> Do you have a favorite inauguration, James, or three? Well, so I. Sorry, James. Not exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess. You know, in, in modern memory, you know, President Obama's inauguration, I'll always remember, like, watching it. You know, it's just one of those, like, you're going to remember being there watching this because it was a historic occasion. So, you know, from kind of a, a modern perspective, I, I think I have to at least, you know, talk about that one. The other one is really 
sad and awkward. And it's the, the Lyndon Johnson in the plane inauguration and that, that photograph. And, mm-hmm. and so one, in, just in terms of like bad staff work, why is Jackie Kennedy there? Yeah. Like, and why isn't somebody giving her a new pair of clothes? Exactly. Uh, well, she she didn't want it. She insisted, she insisted right. on wearing that dress. In she fact, wanted people to know. In fact, she regretted wiping her face off because there was still blood, and she regretted not. She regretted doing that. So was that uh, a political ploy to uh, keep the sympathy going uh, for Johnson? Well, she was on that plane. They were all coming back from Dallas. And so there was a debate about, you know, do we do it immediately? Do we wait till we get to Washington? And and Johnson wanted it happen immediately. And she was it was Air Force One. They were she was on that plane and he wanted her there to show the support again for that peaceful to say, look, no, I support. Yes, he's going to be the next president and I'll stand beside him, literally. And but yeah, no, she said, no, I'm wearing this. I want people to know. I want people to see what happened to my husband. Mm-hmm. Wow. More that famous that than the uh, blue dress that Monica had. Uh, wow. I think uh, that outfit is still in storage and will not be released for, I want to say her will specified like 100 years after her death. But I thought know, it would be in the Smithsonian. You would but, think, right? But you're also talking the height of the Cold War. You still got the tensions with Cuba. You've got the Berlin Wall just settling in. So I can also see Johnson's desire to show the transition has happened. Nobody f f around, y'all. Um, well, and you know he's a paranoid sob. I'm sure he's you know like, <laughs> oh no, you're gonna we're not gonna mess around. I'm president <laughs> right now. I'm going to shut that goddamn Bobby Kennedy up right now. He is not going to dispute my presidency. I can see him thinking that. <laughs> I yeah, haven't I mean, read even, the. Even if no one else was thinking that, he was thinking that. Um, yeah, because he and Bobby hated each other. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, yeah. So uh, we'll we're bouncing around all sorts of history and all sorts of time periods. But as I said, we are doing a special episode on. Not just inaugurations, although there are crazy inaugurations, and we are placing this episode after our Andrew Jackson episode. So for those of you that have heard our Andrew Jackson episode, you heard about that insane transition and inaugural party. And if you haven't, please listen to it now, or at least after you're done listening to this, because we would certainly appreciate it. But because of the Andrew Jackson inauguration itself, there has always been this focus on inaugurations and some of the craziness that happens there. But as we've discovered through the transition from Trump to Biden that, well, there are also rather transition periods between presidents that have become fraught and nutty. And so hence our two experts here. Hey, Chelsea. Yes. What a- your good buddy, John Adams. Uh, was it a tense transition between him and his archenemy best friend, Thomas Jefferson? Archenemy best friend. Uh, I Arch do friend, that. best enemy. Arch frenemy. Is Regina George, if you will. Arch frenemy. <laughs> I mean, it was icy. I actually don't know of any specific stories other than John Adams just being a genuinely generally cold-shouldered uh, Massachusetts man to his one-time BFF. 
but yeah, it was icy for certain. <laughs> well, and he had, he had, didn't he leave town? I mean, he was gone. He was gone. By the, gone. By the time. Yeah, Before he didn't stay for the inauguration. inauguration right, and he left poor old Secretary of State John Marshall there to, like, hire everybody. And so he's trying to give people their hiring papers in, like, the last 24 hours, including himself as Chief Thank Justice you. of the Supreme Court, which then will lead him to rule on probably the most significant Supreme Court case ever, Marbury v. Madison, in which I, I, I still don't understand how he got to rule on this case in which he himself his own actions were the main issue in the case. But the the first presidential transition between uh, opposition parties was not without its hiccups. Ah. <laughs> yeah, so, thank you for reminding like He's still credited as not contesting the uh, results and graciously, and I say that with air quotes, conceding and saying, okay, so he's the new president. I, I think you could give him the credit, although I would also say it's rare in American presidential history that you can use the phrase literally like a thief in the night, <laughs> which is like pre-dawn inauguration day. I, I'm sorry. I was just reading about this one beforehand. He he left sort of in disgrace. So I think, I don't know, it, it raises some questions for me. Obviously, he's respecting the will of the voters, but not exactly the dignity of the office. But we've already heard that there are other presidential transitions where one hated the other and had to try to make nice because it was for the good of the country. And John Quincy Adams, notwithstanding. John Quincy Adams, notwithstanding. Well, even though, like, again, like we, in the case with Lincoln, he's it's almost like he's t- he's taking the oath of office and people are walking out the door as he's doing it, or as, as it were. Oh, yeah. Um, You've also got, like you said, the Jackson and campaigns where they were so horribly personal, (laughs) brutally personal. Uh, And then there are, and then you also have the disputed elections. And so one of the one, as we did the research, one of the ones I was most fascinated in was the Tilden Hayes, Samuel Tilden Rutherbeat Hayes, where they, there was literally a question as to who the president was going to be a week before the actual inauguration. Now, how does one plan an inauguration when it's, it could be president A, it could be president B, or did they kind of know by the time they got to DC who was going to, like, we we know the deal that was put in place and, and the ramifications of it. You know, how much of it was cut in Washington and how much of it was cut on the way to Washington, does it mean? From what I understand, Ruthie and Lucy left Ohio to go to Washington for the inauguration, not knowing who was going to be up there putting a hand on the Bible. It, yeah, they did cut it that close. And yes. it's not like you could have flown in the day before. You had to make a lot of travel preparations. I have it that Rutherford Hayes was secretly sworn in on March 3rd due to controversy. Oh. Yeah, that's why his inauguration is listed as lasting three days from the 3rd to the 5th. Because <laughs> I think his was one of those where it was on March 4th, or the March 4th was a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I think they secretly did it on the 3rd, which raises some interesting constitutional questions. 
So did um, America have two presidents on March 3rd, 1877? Right. Or could you like, is it like just putting like the next day on a check? Like this is the inauguration <laughs> for tomorrow. Post-dated inauguration. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, it, is, is it like Buffy where you have two slayers who happen to be alive at the same time? I just really hope Brotherford Hayes was like, and so help me God tomorrow. <laughs> Starting tomorrow. Yeah, I think they missed a great opportunity for an almost like magic trick like reveal. I think that's how you plan the inauguration. A bachelor a reveal. Stage. Yeah. You put a big trunk on stage and we find out who the president is. Whose hand is on the Bible? <laughs> Camera pulls back. And it's Lucy with a glass of lemonade in the other hand. <laughs> Yeah, there's a reality show right there. America's next president. We are really coming up. No, no more reality shows and presidents. These are quite tall windows. Perhaps some blue silk with gold overlays. Mr. Tilden? Rutherford B. Hayes? Why are you in the Oval Office? I thought I would come by to take a look at my eventual workplace. How dare you be so presumptuous? Mr. Hayes, I did win the popular vote. We have thousands more votes in South Carolina than there are voters. Please, sir, I am trying to see just how long these windows are. Too long, as you will never work in this office. Says you. Says my party. Get out of this office! Now. Look what you did. You terrorized the help. You two! The, the next president of the United States! Is, is that, that what, what you think? think? Over, Over my, my dead, dead body. body. I work for the president of the United States, and at this moment, the president is Ulysses S. Grant, not you! Ma'am, I am Rutherford B. Hayes of the great state of Ohio. Or you! I am Samuel J. Tilden of the Empire State of New York. I am Sarah of Maryland, and I don't care who either of you are. Ma'am, we can't be in the halls of Congress while they negotiate the results of the election. So I thought, why not take a look around the place and see where I may be spending the next few years? Except he is trying to steal what should be mine. All I need is one more electoral vote, and this house will be mine. Never! That's what you think. I do not think. Concede! Gentlemen! Concede! Gentlemen! Concede, damn it! Gentlemen! And I use that term for no other reason than I was born with manners and shall not call you what you deserve to be called. Yes, Miss Sarah. Neither of you are the resident of the People's House for another two days. Until it gets sorted out, you won't know which of you will be here. Screaming at each other will not sort it out any faster. President Grant is afflicted with headaches, and the thought that the two of you are fighting to replace him like the curtains is a disgrace. Please leave. Uh, Madam, I would be honored to have you continue to work in this house as you do honor it and protect it. On that, and perhaps only that, we agree. You are truly worthy of this house. Out! Hm. I bet you were thinking blue curtains. What's wrong with blue? 
blue is majestic. And when my party finds that you last You will never get that last vote. <laughs> While you went on your walking tour, you ignored what was going on in other rooms I was privy to. And now that the southern states shall be given permission by me to reorganize after the war in the way they want, the final votes are being cast. And I shall tell you, the curtains in my old office shall be gold and red. I will invite you when they're done. You son of a... At least they didn't break any dishes, like Mrs. Johnson and Mrs. Grant did. So, so obviously then Adams to Jefferson was the first transition that was clearly fraught with peril and, and, and weirdness and to some extent wanting to see the next guy screw up. Oh. Is or that fair least, to say? Or at least not screw up, but be hampered. Uh, maybe not even hampered, right? Because, because Adam's... Adams appoints all of these people to keep re- Republicans, even though there are not Republicans. Sorry. Democratic Republicans. <laughs> thank you. No. Um, Federalist. <laughs> thank you. Oh, to keep Federalists kind of in power, even though, right, they're not like, oh, there's no political parties. Um, right. And, and I think I, I kind of agree that there is a little bit of malice there, but at the same time, I think it's more about preserving party power yeah i i would agree with that i and i think that that uh, in, in the last you know after a president loses or is not going to return to the office there's always an effort to secure their legacy what however meager the returns might be you know <laughs> they want to ensure that all the stuff that they've done isn't undone and part of that is making sure that you staff the federal government with people who have like-minded ideas as you and that's that's just you know as i often say um if you're a fan of democracy you got to live with results and that sometimes that means that people you don't like get elected and sometimes that means they appoint people you don't like to federal offices and that's uh that's the result you got to live with for the time being even if it's miserable so you're saying consideration of political affiliation has always been part of a transition Yes. What? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I mean, part of, I mean, as again, we're sort, we're in this moment of, oh my God, the norms are all being bent. Oh my God, the norms are all being shredded. You're telling me that actually this sort of hyper partisanship might actually be a norm. Well, for me, the the idea of the transition, the inauguration is it's not so much the pomp and circumstance, but that concept of the peaceful transition of power, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. fact that we were going to succeed, which is which was really unprecedented, that someone willingly, who's still popular, especially with Washington, just gave up power. It's like, okay, it's your turn. To me, I think that was groundbreaking. And that's what kind of being threatened at this very moment. Lawrence Harding wasn't incredibly fond of Edith Wilson because Edith, in the parlance of the day, high-hatted her. What's because Edith was the president for all intents and purposes. So for all intents she and was purposes. busy. That's why Edith did not conduct the tour of the White House 
Or Florence, you just had her housekeeper do it. The Dumont Radio Network presents the Andrew Candius Civility Hour. Brought to you by Sinclair Teapot Domes. Ladies, are your teapots chipped and unsightly? Then a Sinclair Teapot Dome is the perfect cover-up. And now, Andrew Candius. Hello, happy housewives. Welcome to the Andrew Candias Civility Hour, in which I, popular radio personality Andrew Candias, enjoy dignified social intercourse with elegant ladies. Lucky listeners, December 7th, 1920 is a date that will live in radio history. Didn't radio history begin three months ago? So I'm not just whistling Dixie, Mrs. Longworth. Today, we're broadcasting live from the White House, where three refined society ladies will have a civilized chat about the transition between the Wilson and Harding administrations. Here to discuss the pomp and propriety such an occasion merits is our incoming first lady wearing a very chic uh, floral knitwear dress, the lovely Mrs. Florence Kling Harding. Uh, Mrs. Harding, into the microphone, please. The the big silver thing with all the wires. Oh, is that what that is? I thought it was some kind of a modern sculpture. Why do we need a microphone? I don't see an audience except for that droopy man in the corner. Is that President Wilson? For God's sakes, Mrs. Harding, don't you recognize The need for gentility? (laughs) Of course she does. Also joining us in a fetching black charmeuse dress is current first lady, Mrs. Edith Bolingold Wilson, who, after we've had our tea, will give Mrs. Harding a tour of the White House. Are you insane? My housekeeper can do that. Your housekeeper? You mean you can't even be bothered? Now, don't be too harsh, dear Mrs. Harding. You know that Mrs. Wilson is extremely busy. What mm. is that supposed to mean? Nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> so touchy. Hmm. Why are you in black, by the way? You're not in mourning, are you? Of oh. course not. <laughs> oh, the fluff and frivolity. <laughs> and our final guest here to help Mrs. Harding adjust to life in the White House is an expert on the subject, former first daughter, Mrs. Alice Roosevelt Longworth, in a stunning leopard print dress made from a real leopard. Thank you. Papa shot it himself in Africa. Sorry about your father's passing, dear. Oh, I can't tell you how much Papa admired your husband, Mrs. Wilson. And we're all so grateful that Mr. Wilson refused Papa's request for a battalion in the Great War so he could die alone in a sickbed instead of on a battlefield fighting for his country. Please thank him for me. Well, here's your chance. I think that's Mr. Wilson falling off that chair in the corner. Mrs. Harding, are you deaf and blind as well as dumb? That isn't my husband. It's someone else. discuss the inaugural ball. Oh, who doesn't love a gay ball now and then? Let's pour some tea. Can't we have coffee instead? Tea tastes like piss and... Stoles of flowers. Pistols of flowers. Yes, it most certainly does. What a lovely tea service, Mrs. Wilson. What is that idiotic-looking glass thing? Why, Mrs. Harding, it's a Sinclair teapot dome. It's an aesthetic accessory for any plain, unadorned teapot. What a ridiculous boondoggle. I can't imagine the kind of simpleton who would fall for this teapot dome scam. Ha! <laughs> uh, Mrs. Harding, we're live. Well, of course we are. Except maybe that mope over there. 
Oh, can someone check his pulse? Oh, <laughs> Mrs. Harding, you are such a caution. Indeed, she should come with a warning sign. For the last time, Mrs. Harding, that isn't my dear Woodrow. It's It's, it's being who... said in fashionable circles that your husband is almost done picking out his cabinet. Oh, certainly not, Mr. Candyass. It's Candyass. <clears throat> I'll be furnishing the White House myself. Thank you very much. Oh, dear, sweet, delightful Mrs. Harding. I'm talking about secretaries. And so am I. I'm having two built from the finest of wood. One for my bedroom and one for my drawing room. Oh, Mrs. Harding, ever the jester. That would explain the way she's dressed. I beg your pardon? As you should. I thought Kling was your maiden name, not a descriptor for your wardrobe. Well, you've got some nerve for the woman whom half of Washington calls Edith Bowling Ball Wilson. <laughs> oh, perhaps we shan't overdo the jaunty, good-natured repartee. Not all of our listeners know that at some tea parties, the crueler the insults, the greater the friendship. We haven't been to the same tea parties, Mr. Candyass. It's Candyass, you can Scented, happy woman. Let me pour you some tea and you can share your post-presidency plans. Indeed, Mrs. Wilson. You deserve a nice long rest. Oh, don't be a halfwit. I'm always resting. Why, I'm almost as useless as one of those stupid teapot domes. Which makes a fine addition to any home. Oh, really? I was given to understand that Mr. Wilson is unable to function without you. Heavens no. Woodrow is in complete control of all his faculties, and if you keep suggesting otherwise, I'll have you arrested. The Sedition Act is still in effect, you know. Ladies, this is called the Civility Hour. Oh, Civility Schmivility. I am going to march over to that corner and prove to the world that Woodrow Wilson is sick and that his wife has been running the country for months. I tell you, I haven't been this excited since Papa strangled a wildebeest with his bare hands. Speaking of wildebeest, I see you're back already, Mrs. Harding. Well, tell us, what did the man in the corner tell you? Not a blessed thing. It is not Mr. Wilson. It's Vice President-elect Calvin Coolidge. Oh, I thought Mrs. Wilson might have killed someone, and that was his corpse. No, but I can understand the confusion. Coolidge dropped by for lunch. I think he needs the lavatory, but can't open his mouth long enough to ask where it is. Oh, my, this has been quite the special episode of the Andrew Candia Civility Hour. What? Uh, here's a telegram. Oh, dear, it's from the network mogul Alan DeMont <clears throat> saying, Dear Candyass, it's Candyass. Switchboard lighting up. Stop. Getting better sponsors. Stop. Keep those hens squawking and don't let them stop. Stop. Hmm, sounds like Mrs. Candyass's little boy Andy will be trying on some new diggies. Tune in tomorrow for the Andrew Candyass Ladies Complaints Hour, brought to you by Midol, the cure for periodic pain. What happened to the Sinclair Teapot Dome? Never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's a here's a I think one I sketch, don't know. <laughs> Did Woodrow Wilson attend Warren Harding's inauguration? Like, was he well enough to attend? Because he was like, I... he was like, 
had a stroke for like the last like several months of his presidency. Well, the question, maybe the better question is, was his body there and did he realize it? <laughs> Let me check my biography of Warren G. Harding written by none other than John W. Dean, who came from the same small town, Ohio, in Ohio, that seems to produce nothing but corrupt Republicans. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was so incapacitated that they probably did n- would not have had him at the inauguration because that probably would have raised more questions than they wanted. I just found it and they did, actually. It marked the first time that the, pr- the outgoing president and incoming were escorted from the Capitol via automobile. Oh. So Wilson, My- Wilson was there. Yes, but I to your point, I suspect he probably did not get on the stage. No, I'm just finding like the bare facts of this, so I'm not sure about that. Oh, it yeah, also wait, makes no. me wonder which Mrs. Harding was on the uh, podium with Warren. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I missed a line. The, the following line is Wilson, still enfeebled by the 1919 stroke, did not attend the ceremony itself, just rode to the Capitol with him. So you were correct, ah, That sounds about right. Maybe that's our third president who has not attended an inauguration. That one, a good an excuse. that one I that one just may deserve an asterisk yeah. though. For, Two Adamses and Wilson. Right. Well, I mean Wilson really didn't have a choice so much. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the asterisk, right. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I and obviously the ones who are dead, right? You know, Lincoln wasn't there for Johnson, Kennedy wasn't there for Johnson. Um Garfield wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> Or wait, who followed for Arthur? I almost said for Johnson. That would have been confusing. (laughs) Be sure to download part two of So Help Me, I Swear. Sketch comedy and discussion about presidential inaugurations and transitions. Available at your favorite podcasting market. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Pacola, Sandy Bakowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Walton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production of the Electables podcast is by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. The Electables concept was created by Patrick J. Riley. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.com, who is the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedychicago.com. Go to DB Comedy's episodes page at simplecast.com and follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy and Twitter at DB Comedy Chicago. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to like.